But the truth is that IVF just has really low success rates. And so IVF is seen as this thing that you do when you're infertile or in this case, you know, that you're, you're able to have the option to do later. And, you know, it feels like a guarantee, like this is a, a safe plan for me later that I can come back to. And a lot of women probably feel safe that if they do this, it's going to give them the guarantee that they'll have the option later. And that's not always the case. This is the Rose Woman Pod, and I'm your host, Christine Marie Mason. Every week, we talk about something that creates a little bit more spaciousness in our mind, body, and heart, something that moves us from a taboo or a secret into liberation and creates more peace, power, and pleasure in our bodies and beings. So this week is no exception. We're in the middle of a month on what is a family, and today we're actually talking about what it means when you are involuntarily childless, how it feels to you. We will at some point talk about childless by choice, but this one's uh, speaking to the women out there and the men also who are impacted by this, where you plan to have a family and for a variety of reasons, it just can't happen. Our guest is Katie Seppi. She is the founder of Chasing Creation and the Chasing Creation Summit and has a very personal story about how she came to do this work. But first, I'd like to start with a poem. Andromeda at Midlife by Anne Cephala. Why do I read my daily horoscope? The sun's angle cast over lines, planets telling me to avoid purchases or commitments. I want to believe in this cosmic dance, that slow radiating waves pull at me like tides, Arrange a telephone call from someone I haven't heard from in six years. Looking at the constellations or the ring around Saturn, I need to believe in a pattern, a higher order, a face with designs upon me, like the alarm that wakes me each day. Reporter breathless with 6.30 a.m. crises. The idea that light so far away could ever reach or influence me. I could study tea leaves, but I like the bigness up there the regularity of Orion arriving each winter, the exhaustion of Perseus running. I think there is room for me, too. A constellation, a myth, a woman of 43, looking up and wondering, who realizes at last the dipper is full, the hunter will never catch the bear, and Andromeda must unloose her own chains, rub her rusty wrists, stretch, then sit down and cast her future in stars. If the date is right, about one in five of you have no children. And childlessness isn't something that comes with the same experience from all women. Some women have the intention to have children and cannot do it because of infertility. That's about 10% of the childless population. Another 10% or so choose not to have children for a variety of reasons, They don't want to pass on their family trauma. They're worried about the planet, the state of the earth. They're not sure that they are going to be responsible enough or it doesn't fit their life design. There's lots of reasons that people choose not to have children. And then there are the 80% or so that don't have children because they age out, they don't ever find a partner, etc. But What I was surprised to learn in preparing for this episode is that that's been pretty consistent throughout history. 
even in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, when they first started collecting data, about one in five women then uh, was childless by the time they completed their fertile period in life. And so the difference and the lack of documentation in on this is that women who were childless and that period of family systems design were largely nested in big family systems where they were just kind of flowing in and out and there were a lot of children to care for and a lot of people moving about. It wasn't like they were childless and isolated or you know, they just, they just existed in a different context than now in a small family system. And because the family system had a lot of children, the average birth rate was in the fives and now it's about one seven in the West, that you really had a different experience of like the role of various adults in playing in the family. And even today in a lot of subcultures, there is a really big pressure like to be fulfilled as a woman, you need to have a child. But what happens if you have the childbearing intent and you just can't? Infertility has a lot of causes, PCOS, uterine disorders, all kinds of things that are unknown now. Fertility rates are declining in general. Infertility rates are climbing both among men and women. I mean, if you just look at men alone, the decline in fertility is like, there's about a half, a 50% sperm motility now than there was in 1970. The theory is that from a lot of stress and endocrine disruptors in the things we eat and in plastics and the environment. But what if you're a woman who really felt that part of her calling was to be a mother and then it just doesn't happen or you go through a course of infertility and you don't succeed the the successful outcome of that fertility or having a baby doesn't come to pass we are in the middle of a series on families and what makes a family and today i have a wonderful guest katie seppi who wrote a blog called Chasing Creation. And out of the response to that blog, women who are involuntarily childless and trying to design their life after this childless situation has become clear, like resign themselves to that situation, communicate there about the the grief and the challenges and the situations they find themselves in, uh, and then support each other in crafting a new life plan. So that's what we're going to talk about today is childlessness that's involuntary. We will talk about child-free by choice in another episode. And I learned so much about the experience of some of our sisters uh, by listening and speaking with Katie, and I hope you do also. So please enjoy this conversation with the founder of Chasing Creation, Katie Seppi. So Katie, I would really love to know about your personal journey into this topic and how you became, how you came to be an advocate for women who are childless. I was someone who always assumed that I would be a mom. It was something that was, uh, I was really excited about. And then when I started trying to get pregnant, it turned out that I was infertile. So I spent about four years trying to get pregnant. I had a failed IVF cycle and two surgeries during that time. I was diagnosed with endometriosis and fibroids. 
about three years ago, I made the decision to have a hysterectomy to improve my quality of life. And that was what can put an end to my infertility journey and open up this new chapter of trying to figure out, okay, now what is my life going to look like without kids? Because I had never really even thought of that as a possibility. Through that, I felt you know very alone. I didn't really know anyone in my immediate support circle who had been through that. So I just I couldn't find other people who really got it. And so I started Chasing Creation as a blog. And then that morphed into other types of events and services that I've now been providing. But it really was just started out as a way for me to meet other people who had been through infertility and ended up childless. And Chasing Creation is, is such a beautiful uh, name for what was going on with you because it really did feel uh, in, in your story that this motherhood role was such a core part of your anticipated identity mm-hmm. and that you were like, you, you didn't want to give it up. And so I'm curious about the inner journey from this identity to where you are now and sort of this, were there stages? What, what was it like for you? Yeah, I think there are definitely stages and I don't think it's been linear stages either because they end up overlapping, but I definitely started out in just very, very deep grief. And I didn't know that that's what it was at the time. I just knew that I felt really awful and I was crying a lot and I didn't want to pursue hobbies or spend time with people that I loved. I just was kind of cocooning. And when I finally had a name for it, that what I was experiencing was grief and, you know, I didn't have the loss of a child, but I did have the loss of what I had thought my life was going to look like and what I had planned for it to be like. And so I think grief was the first part of it. And I was lucky to have a really great therapist who helped me work through a lot of that. And that still stays. Like I, I think I'll probably have some of that forever. The next part was just getting to this place where I started to feel more like myself again once the grief started to lift and I got my personality back and I started being interested in things I used to be interested in. And so it was this I guess kind of like a reawakening, but it was this new place that I'd never found myself in because here I was a different person from who I've been before and with different expectations about how my life would look. And so I spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what does this mean for me? What do I want my life to look like? That piece, as you went through it, how did it resolve itself Um, after you sort of accepted it and you went through the grief? What's it like for you now? Well, I don't know if I would necessarily say it resolved itself because I still, like I said, I still have grief. I still more in that part of my life that I had wanted, but I think it's just been in coming to accept that I was not going to have kids. It opened up a lot of space and freedom for me to be able to explore pathways that I would not have looked at before. Um, For example, you know, I can't quit my job because I have maternity benefits and this would be a great job, you know, for having childcare and I can't move to this place because I need to be near good school. So just being able to plan for myself without having that expectation that I need to plan for children in my future, it did open up a lot of uh, different possibilities that I maybe hadn't considered before. Sounds like some possibilities for greater risk-taking. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There was a a social cost that you spoke to that it wasn't only like something that you experienced when you were by yourself and this, this personal loss, but some, some kind of a shift in the way you were 
treated or how you met society when you were going through the IVF journey, at least the infertility journey? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's probably even worse after infertility because I think people understand infertility and that's something that they probably know someone who's been through it and they have some sympathy for that. But the expectation is that your infertility journey is getting you to the baby and that that's the happy ending you get. And so I think if you get to this place where you're childless, you have to navigate your own grief and what that means for you personally and the loss that you're experiencing but then you have all these layers of loss and grief piled on top of you from society's expectations. So when I am working with women in this community, some of the most common things that I hear are that their family doesn't get it. Their mothers have a hard time accepting that they're not going to have kids and that they're not going to be made a grandma through them. And so I feel like, you know, part of it is our families putting the expectation on us that we should have kids or that we will have kids. And then it adds these layers of guilt and shame when it doesn't happen. And then uh, the other thing that I hear a lot from, from women who are going through this is that their friendships are really impacted because most of their friends become moms. And now there's this divide where when they're around their friends, all the conversation is centering around motherhood and they feel left out, but also that hits their grief because it's a constant reminder of what they weren't able to have and it makes them feel more isolated. So it just adds these layers where it doesn't only, it's not just a personal thing. It becomes a social thing because of the expectation in our society that women are mothers and how connected that is. Yeah. There seems to be a strange bifurcation in the culture of like, adoring mothers and deifying them and motherhood as a whole, uh, you know, the whole Madonna thing, but then not providing much support for mothers and also making it economically like you, you get more respect in many communities from being in a professional out, working outside of the home, having a title and a budget than you would if you were raising the next generation of humans. So, so this sort of tension between the glorification of it and the ghettoization of it such a strange thing in the culture do you notice that well i think it's i think it comes back to living in a pronatalist society because it what that does i think it's harmful to women who don't have kids and women who have kids because if motherhood is the ultimate that we should all be striving for then it creates this for moms, it creates this pressure to be the perfect mom and to wrap your identity into that and to that that is the most important thing. And then for non-moms, it's, you know, we're looked at as less than or not as worthy. But you're right. I mean, I'm not trying to say that moms have it easy. I know that they get criticized and have this whole layer of, um, judgment that they get from people as well. So I think just as women, that's something we can all relate to no matter where we're at. What do you see as a predictor of how difficult it will be about the difference in different parts of the culture? Like if you're growing up in some urban areas, there's a bias towards not having children because it's too expensive and there's all mm -hmm. these other things. And then if you're growing up in certain religious environments, it's more intense from your community perspective. You've talked to thousands of women now. How do different cultures impact the woman's experience of infertility? Well, we have one in five women who are childless by the time they reach the end of their childbearing years. So 
even if in urban areas where there may be a higher population of women who end up not having children, it's still, uh, you know, across the country, one in five. So uh, motherhood is definitely still the the most common. 10% of those chose not to have children. So it was something that they, you know, it was a, it was an active choice not to have kids. 10% of those went through infertility and were not able to have a child at the end of that and didn't adopt. And then the other 80% are actually childless by circumstance, I guess would be the best way to put it. So these are women who never really get the opportunity to try. So maybe they never meet a partner that they want to try with. That's the case, but they also don't want to be a single parent. It could be that they marry someone who really doesn't want kids. And so they could be childless by marriage where, you know, they're, they're um, deciding not to have children because their partner doesn't want it. So that's kind of the makeup in terms of what we look like as childless women. And I do think that the culture that you're in does make a difference to some degree. I think, you know, for me, for example, I grew up in a very conservative Mormon household and motherhood was definitely taught as kind of the pinnacle of what you're trying to achieve in this lifetime. And I have also lived in really conservative places. So that will definitely add layers of just expectations and what a woman's life is supposed to look like. And I think, you know, that that definitely includes motherhood and puts that kind of at the top of the list. I would still say, though, that while some of those expectations are lessened, if you're someone who maybe lives in a more progressive or more urban area, I will still say that most of the women that I talk to who are living in those areas still see a lot of impact to trying to figure out their new identity and uh, the way that the conversations that they're having with their families and their friends seem to be just as difficult. While there is some degree, I definitely think there's a degree of how you're going to process it based on your feelings about motherhood going into it. And, you know, you also have women who are ambivalent. So maybe you have someone who doesn't know if they want kids or not, and it's probably going to be easier for them to process it because they can see other options for their life than someone who their entire life expected to be a mom. And they hadn't really thought about what that would look like if they weren't. A portion of this are are women who put off childbearing, uh, thinking that they would freeze their eggs and then they would go back and unfreeze them. And it would just be, boom, I can put this little egg in the Petri dish and now I've got a baby. And right. that the, the total mismatch between the doctor who's freezing the eggs and the accountability for their ultimate usability when they're unfrozen and how many women get shocked by that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a part of freezing your eggs and then using them later is all IVF, right? You're doing it at a different time because you're not extracting the eggs and turning them into embryos and implanting them all within one cycle, you're doing it years apart. But the truth is the IVF just has really low success rates generally, if you look up charts and that that's something you can just look up because the statistics are all available. Every center that does IVF has to report their numbers. So those are easy to find and success rates just aren't great for any IVF. And so I think IVF is seen as this thing that you do when you're infertile or in this case, you know, that you're, you're able to have the option to do later. And I don't think that many women look into the numbers before they do this. So they, you know, it feels like a guarantee, like this is a a safe plan for me later that I can come back to. And 
you know, the reproductive endocrinology, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And so it's, it's a for-profit system. And I don't feel like doctors are always really upfront with those numbers or talking to you about your chances or um, kind of what you can expect. And so, yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of women probably feel safe that if they do this, it's going to give them the guarantee that they'll have the option later. And that's not always the case. Yeah. I was really surprised to hear that. Um, so that'll, that'll change over time. So, okay. I love that you were uh, out there helping women. And one of the things you talked about was the graceless aspects of social encounters with people who do have children or have this expectation that that's the way it's going to be. I think they would all be shocked to hear that one in five women don't have a child. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a big number. And it yeah. hasn't really been that different historically, like women in the 1880s were also one in five. And, and now it looks like it's going to one in three in Japan, it's one in three. Mm-hmm. So, so here you are, you're walking around and you're just making the assumption that others are having the same childbearing experience. So what are some of the things you, the, the people say now in social situations that you'd like to see changed and what would you suggest they do? Yeah. So I think this is a huge one because it does add to that grief of, uh, you know, if you are processing, if you're going through infertility or you are processing the grief of being childless, that's heavy on your heart anytime you're having an interaction with someone. And so, you know, let's say you just found out that your IVF cycle failed and you're going to a dinner party. You may get asked three or four times by different people if you have kids. And every time you get asked that, it's bringing up that pain of, you know, what you've just experienced or what you're going through. And so it's this disconnect of, I think, I don't think anyone is being intentional and wanting to, to hurt someone or bring up something that's painful, but it's this disconnect of, we often use, do you have kids as a, just a very common get to know you question. It's, I think, because we assume that others have kids, it's, you're thinking it's an easy way to connect. People like talking about their kids. It's an easy conversation starter. And so that's a go-to for a lot of us. But if you ask someone who's grieving, that's going to hit a pain point for them. And it puts us in a really awkward position of, do we lie to try to make it not uncomfortable by saying like, no, I didn't want them. I mean, I don't think anyone lies and says they have kids, you know, but, you know, it it feels like if you come back from that question and say, no, I couldn't have them. No, I'm infertile. No, I wasn't able to. That all of a sudden creates this weird situation where it gets really awkward. And then Mm. it also opens it up where typically what I tend to get back and what I hear from others that they'll get back is trying to fix it, giving solutions. So then all of a sudden we're getting miracle baby stories of, well, my cousin's dog walker, whatever, you know, went through this many rounds of IVF and finally had a baby and you should do that. Or, you know, you should just get drunk and, and go on vacation. It will definitely happen if you relax enough. It's just all these things that we say to, to women who are infertile. Um, And if we're not going through infertility, then a lot of times we'll get the, why don't you just adopt? So it, it turns something that was supposed to be a casual conversation into uh, bringing up a lot of grief and then a lot of defensiveness around having these, this awkward interaction. 
it's also like when you are pregnant and everybody wants to touch your belly and it's none of their business. Mm -hmm. Like this is one of the biggest decisions of your life or the biggest situations of your life. And believe me, I saw this meme the other day where it was like, Hey, your Google search isn't more accurate than my medical degree. And it's kind of like that. If you go to a party (laughs) and some, you know, listen, just because you're having this thought right now in this moment in response to what I'm telling you, like, I guarantee you, you're not going to have anything to add to the conversation. I've been through right. this for five years. So there's like this weird presumption, presumptiveness around it too. Okay. So we're going to ask different questions for sure. So what have been the impact of, of sort of opening this dialogue up and, and doing Chasing Creation? What, what has changed for you in, as you've encountered more women who are having this experience and what's happened with the women as they've built community around it? Yeah, I think it's brought a lot of healing and a lot of validation, not just to me, I mean, definitely for me, but then also for the women that I connect with, because I'm always surprised because one in five women are childless, that it often feels like we don't have anyone in our circle, in our immediate like support system who's been through it. And so just having somebody to talk to that you can share those moments that are really hard and have someone say, yeah, I totally get it. And to be able to validate you in that and to share that experience with you. What I found is that for me, I was trying to get that validation from people in my life who really couldn't understand fully and who I don't know if they ever will, even though they are very lovely and trying. And so just being around other people who have experienced it and get it it helped me heal in a way where I didn't need that as much from the people that I normally get support from. And so it has been just this beautiful way to create community and validation and healing and just understanding. And I think that does help, you know, even just brainstorming with someone like, well, how, what, what are you, what are you saying when you get asked if you have kids at parties and let's talk about that and let's try to brainstorm how we can handle it better next time. And just having people to talk through the things that you're experiencing with has just been really powerful. I love, I I do believe that we heal it together. We heal in relationship and in community and that definitely speaks to that. So you had this summit and there were a lot of different kinds of speakers who came at it from many different perspectives. Mm-hmm. What are some of the speaking topics that were most useful and, and what are the other issues that arise for uh, women without children? Oh, that's a big question. Well, yeah, the summit was amazing. So I put that on in March of this year and it was four days and 28 presentations. And I really wanted to highlight a lot of the voices of either people who are childless, most were childless. Um, there are a few moms, but who, um, you know, are therapists who work with the infertility community. And it was, uh, like you said, a wide range of topics. So the first day, everything was focused on sharing our stories. So we talked about the importance of that. So all of the um, presentations were focused on that. And then the second day, the theme was focused on finding healing. So we talked a lot about grief and how to move forward. And then the third day was on making connections. And so we talked about how does this impact our relationships and um, our faith and all these different ways that we connect with the world socially. And then the last day was focused on looking ahead. And so it was really about how do you move forward and rebuild your identity and find community and do all these things to get your life to a place where you love it again. And so 
yeah, it was, it's, it was, I think very unique. I don't know of anything else like it. There was um, a woman who, her name is Karen Malone, who did a, a summit for a few years called the NOMO summit. And she stopped doing that a few years ago. So there was definitely a gap there. And um, I, I just saw a real need for it. And it was, we had about 2,800 people register to attend. So I was really blown away by how many people were interested with this being a first time thing. Any policy questions come out of there? Are there any things that as you have these dialogues with women that need to be changed in governance or healthcare or anything like that? That's a really good question. I mean, I think one of the things that I think about a lot is, we didn't talk about this at the summit, but one of the things I think about a lot is having insurance coverage for infertility treatments because most people don't. And so I think that is definitely an area of policy that could be looked at and just you know, having women even have the option to pursue fertility treatments because, for example, my one IVF cycle was 20 grand. And I was wow. lucky enough to have infertility coverage for it, but I only had about a 40% chance of a successful cycle with that. And so it's a hard thing to try to figure out, do I want to put 20 grand into this knowing I have only a 40% chance of it working? So those are some hard decisions. And I think they wouldn't be as difficult if we had you know, insurance coverage, which some states do, but most of them don't. So I think that's one area. In terms of women who are childless, uh, Jody Day, who is the founder of Gateway Women, she does a lot. She's been doing this for 10 years, working within this childless uh, space. And she did talk at the summit about HR policies, because one thing that uh, happens is if workplaces offer parental leave, maternity leave, which I believe they should, I think it's really important that they do. But a lot of times it ends up being women who don't have kids that end up being asked to, to fill in for them while they're gone or uh, to work on holidays. Like I, I have found that to be really common that someone will say, well, can you work on Christmas? Because these people need to be home with their families. And it's like, well, I have a family too. I just don't have kids. And so I think as those, there are some HR policies, I think that could be looked at in terms of if women without kids are being expected to fill in the gaps for uh, mothers who need more flexible schedules, then, you know, are, what, what can we do to try to equalize that? Because uh, for example, I, I work with a lot of people my age and have had a number of them beyond um, maternity or paternity leave for months. And if you have someone who's constantly filling in, that ends up being a lot of extra work that you're taking on over the years that really compounds. Yeah, you're really raising an interesting question around what is the purpose of your life? Like, is your life to enjoy your life an endpoint in itself? Or is it only worthy of care and love when you're taking care of the next generation? Mm -hmm. And the assumption there is that, you know, it's more worthy when you're taking care of the next generation. Um, and then you can rest and have holidays off. But it's a much bigger question like, what is our purpose and what is our identity? Is it only to reproduce? Or we could talk about it in another way. You are in this ch generational chain of care. A lot of women in their 30s and 40s are, and 50s are also caring for their parents. Mm -hmm. They're like sandwiched in between. And I think the work world and HR in general biases a, towards the productive, healthy middle of life. And the whole idea that we're all sort of nested in this large continuum of family and needs and different things we go through, whether it's illness or young child rearing is, should be a more holistic conversation, I think. Yeah. In general. And I think the burden is still 
being mostly placed on women in the workforce. Like I, I don't hear men having these conversations as frequently because I think the workforce is already set up for them to just be productive and they aren't always the ones who, uh, who society feels should be responsible for caretaking. So I love your question about who, you know, what, how, what makes your life worthy. Right. And I would say, yes, you just hanging out and doing what you want to do. You are a worthy human being and you do what you want to do. And I think that's another thing that I see within the childless community is we feel like if we aren't having children, we need to then justify what we are doing to take up space on this planet that's contributing. And so a lot of times it'll be like, but I'm an aunt and I'm really involved in, in those kids' lives, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a nurse. And it's this kind of having to validate that you're taking care of someone and you have nurt trust me, I promise I'm nurturing. Like I'm not a monster. And, and that can be hard because some women don't want to find something else to nurture or to take care of. And so if you think about the role that childless women are, are feeling, filling in our society, I think it's fine if they don't want to, if they just want to live their life and have something that makes them happy, but isn't contributing, you go for it. Um, And there, but there are also a lot of childless women who are, you know, scientists and in uh, helping professions or I, I don't know, business, like business owners, like people who are doing a lot within society and maybe they don't get as recognized for that by others. But I think that there are a lot of ways to contribute to society and we don't have to just all have our lives look one way in order to, to be worthy of filling up space on this planet. I, this is a very important conversation. I, that, that piece, like, yeah, you, you know what you could do all day, Katie is sit back and reflect back to divinity, the beauty of the world around you by just enjoying it. And that could be the end point of your DNA line. And it would be just fine. Yep. Or, or even, <laughs> even, even hidden in there is this like bias about what's a good woman. She's a nurturing yeah. woman. Mm-hmm. What if she's a warrior? What yeah. if she's a crazy artist or an inventor who's like mm-hmm. at the edge of something and that's her legacy. Like, I really believe we have spoken to individuation as the highest and best. Like it's what you as an individual do or contribute versus thinking about the human organism. I think the grief would be less if we talked about, Hey, guess what? In this community, four out of five of you are going to have a baby one out of five isn't, and we're all going to collaborate together to make an amazing society. It's not like if you'd have grown up with that viewpoint, there'd be a lot. Oh, you'd just be like, oh, I, I fell into this, this other category that I was kind of expecting. Uh, You know, I feel like it would be very, a very different view if we didn't um, pathologize the edges. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So are you going to write a book? (laughs) I would love (laughs) to write a book. I don't know when it will be on my to-do list, I have a lot of other projects that I am kind of dreaming of right now, but it's definitely on my list somewhere. I have this feeling that there's something in it about if you decide to do it, that, you know, the subtitle is somewhere in, you know, the unspoken mandate to bear children and the impact on women worldwide or something like that. There's something beautiful. Yeah. Um, that needs to be spoken more broadly so people understand that experience. 
Is there anything else you'd like to add about what's been going on for you or what you're doing next? Um, I mean, I'll be hosting another summit. I'm hoping to make it an annual thing. So that's probably not going to be till next summer. So that's a ways out, but I'll start planning that in the next few months. And then right now I do have childless support circles that I run every month. And one of the very cool things that has come out of this is that there tends to be a consensus of people who say, this is the first time I've ever been with 10 other women who don't have kids because Mm -hmm. it's so often that we find ourselves in rooms with mostly moms. uh, And again, just that conversation and being able to share how we're feeling about our experience as childless women is sometimes not uh, received well. And I I don't want to put like a blanket over that because I have family and friends who have just been so loving and supportive and who do get me and who do, who are willing to listen and all of that. But it is a weird thing to be in those support circles, which we do online and to realize wow, I don't know when I was ever around 10 other women who who were also all childless. It just doesn't happen very often. So those have been a really powerful place to come together and just talk about different topics and heal and support one another. And so if someone's needing uh, more resources and support, they can, you know, find me, they can join these circles and that I'm not the only voice in this. There, I think, especially when you're going through infertility, the the main message that you hear is never give up. And there's this real focus on motherhood being the outcome of infertility. And they kind of get equated where it leaves people who don't end up with a baby feeling really left out. And so I try to get, keep, stay in touch with the infertility community so that I can give people a softer place to land if they do go through infertility and don't have a kid, that they know that they're not alone. They know there's community for them. And so I'm not the only voice around this. There are some really amazing therapists and people running accounts uh, on Instagram and other social media platforms that uh, have really become a, a wonderful community that you can get involved in and get support from. So if you're out there and you are having an involuntary childless experience, you can find support. Don't go it alone. You know, mm-hmm. just there's so rarely that the things we think we're experiencing as only ours are shared by so many other humans and there's no shame in it. Find support. And if you're someone who is, uh, what did you say? Pronatalist and you're walking around <laughs> <Yeah>. with that <laughs> as your, as your orientation and bias, check yourself, you know, <laughs> broaden your perspective on what life is for so many different paths. Thank you so much, Katie. Yes. I just want to end by saying thank you so much for giving my me a voice on your platform, because this is actually, I've been on a lot of podcasts. This is the first one that's not infertility related. And I just appreciate that you are thinking about this, that it's something that you are giving time and space for, because um, it just means so much to me. And in a lot of us as childless women feeling kind of invisible and uh, not really knowing where we fit in. It just makes me feel really good that you reached out and, and wanted to have this included as a topic. So I just wanted to thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I just, on that note, that's this almost the same verbiage from the woman I spoke with around grand families. Mm, yeah. Almost 3 million children are being raised by their grandparents mm-hmm. in America. And they also said they feel invisible and nobody yeah. sees them and nobody cares. And that's the whole point of this month is like, we're doing step parenting experiences, mm-hmm. grand families and this, and like saying, look, ladies, women, I mean, humans, 
people with a vulva. I don't know. <laughs> I'm constantly getting challenged. I'm saying women. Like, ah, I don't know. You know, generally speaking, women plus or minus two or three degrees of freedom. Be kinder. Be more tolerant. Look at all the experiences that are happening on earth and just open your hearts to one another. Yes. And I, I love that. I mean, I think it sounds like the what's tying all of these together is this idea that family doesn't mean one thing. If we say family, that vision, if we have a vision in our heads, if that means a man and a woman and two kids, that is one version of a family. And there are a hell of a lot of other families out there that don't look anything like that. So it sounds like you're incorporating a lot of those different, different ways that people can come together and be families. Yeah. The next one is family by choice. Which I is love that people who've all left their natal families mm-hmm. and come together to create some intentional community or something like that. Cause the natal oh, family yeah. was not functional. And so <laughs> you're absolutely right. Thanks for joining me today on the Rose woman, please. If you know someone who's childless or is having some experience where they might benefit from hearing Katie's story, pause right now and text them a link to this episode. I would love to be your Instagram pal. If you want to come over and find me, I'm at the.rose.woman. Or you can find my company at Rosebud Woman. We make amazing products for intimate skin and body care through all the stages of a woman's life and life cycle. Gorgeous, clean, indie beauty, wonderful ingredients, effective ingredients. I've put tons of energy and resources into building this business, which is all around unwinding sexual shame and body shame in women. And I would love your support. That's rosewoman.com. Have a beautiful day and to your complete and joyful freedom and liberation in a body in this lifetime. <laughs>